0: We spent last time examining the person of Christ, so his full divinity and his humanity uh, as well. We examined the incarnation and the virgin birth and some implications of those. And tonight we're going to be getting into the real meat and potatoes of Christology, and like I mentioned, we're going to be examining the atonement tonight and also uh, next time. So this is... This is part one of the atonement, so the handout you have is not for both times, it's just for tonight. And you'll get get a new one next time. So, before we really jump in uh, to examining the atonement, um, I just wanted to remind us just kind of where we are and where we're headed. So, again, we just kind of introduced Christology, we talked about the person of Christ tonight and next time we'll be in the atonement uh, after that, we'll be looking at the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. We'll spend one, one whole Sunday night on both of those, and then we'll end with the, with the offices of Christ. So have a full, full slate ahead of us. So I'd like for us uh, to first define what we mean by the atonement, and it's, and it's a very specific definition, uh, the atonement, not just atonement in general. What does the atonement of Christ mean? I've given you several definitions there uh, in your handout, all of them good. I tried to pick the shortest, most succinct uh, definitions I could here. Some of them were really long. You'd be surprised how long uh, we, uh, we could take to define the atonement. Justin McKittrick defines the atonement as the work of Jesus Christ by which he brings about salvation to the sinner, restoring relationship between sinful man and holy God. MacArthur defines the atonement as Christ gave himself to suffer and die by bearing the full penalty for sin in the place of all sinners whom God saves. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology defines the atonement, the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. John Murray gives us a really short definition, but it's really powerful, the accomplishment of redemption. In the David Gibson and Jonathan Gibson Say, in the work of Jesus Christ, God achieved the redemption of every person given to the Son by the Father, and applied the accomplishments of his sacrifice to each of them by the Spirit. All those are, are, are good definitions. So, we should understand the atonement of Christ as the work of Christ to earn our salvation. Very simply that, it's, it's Christ's work to earn our salvation. We could call tonight the work of Christ instead of the atonement of Christ. But that is what we are referring to, the work of Christ to earn our salvation. So now let's look at the motive for the atonement. There were some divine motives that God had that that spurred him on uh, to sending the Son. So what was it that spurred God on into sending the Son to provide atonement for sin? We'll go through these somewhat, somewhat quickly. The first motive is the glory of God. 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17. it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So first and foremost, God receives glory from the work of the Son. Christ taking on human nature brings glory to God. Sinners finding mercy in Christ brings glory to God. Christ being a perfect example to his image bearers and being the perfect sacrifice brings glory to God. Those who gain eternal life in him bring glory to God. There's rejoicing in heaven when even one sinner repents, the scripture tells us. God is magnified by Christ and what he accomplishes for sinners. His grace is displayed. His mercy is displayed. His patience is displayed, as Paul told us in 1 Timothy. His holiness is displayed. And also his his divine love is displayed. And that's that's the second motive for the atonement is the love of God. Passage you know well, John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. There are multiple aspects to the love of God. The love of God here is, is a is a general love with which he loves the entire world. Every image bearer falls under this category. Now he loves his people with a special love, but it is a biblical reality that he loves all of the world with this general general love. And this is what motivated him to send Christ to the world for the salvation of sinners. So two motives. For the atonement, you could probably think of more. Just wanted to give you a couple of them. The glory of God and the love of God. I'd like for us now to examine the theme of atonement, kind of broadly, the theme of atonement. And this is where we're going to spend um, the, the majority of our time tonight, is in the theme of atonement. We'll look at the theme uh, first in the Old Testament, then we'll examine the New Testament. So so first, atonement in the Old Testament. And I'd like to focus our attention uh, primarily in the Pentateuch, with several passages containing accounts and instructions pertaining uh, to the theme of, of atonement. First is the Passover. I'd like for you to turn to Exodus chapter 12, if you don't mind in your Bibles. Exodus chapter 12. Verses 1-13, through 13. this is the, the account of the Passover. We're going to examine several rather large chunks of Scripture tonight here in the Old Testament in particular, and, and the purpose is not to do like an exposition through these passages and kind of unpack every, everything that might be in there. I just want you to see a broad theme in these, in these accounts. Exodus 12, 1-13. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year for you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are, each one, to take a lamb for themselves, according to the father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to him are to take one according to the number of persons in them. In proportion to what each one should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to slaughter it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it, They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall completely burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this way, with your garment belted around your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and fatally strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the human firstborn to animals. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute these judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will come upon you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It's a familiar story to you, no doubt. In concluding the plagues prior to Israel's exodus from Egypt, God institutes this Passover observance to be observed on that night, and it is something that was to be corporately observed every year as well, in which the Lamb functioned in this night as a substitutionary sacrifice for the Israelites' firstborn. The sacrifice of the lamb appears to prevent the penalty of death for those living in that household, particularly the firstborn. God's wrath was going to pass over them if the blood was there, and only the blood. Now, the text doesn't tell us that the Passover lamb atoned for anything, but it did protect and preserve the household from temporal judgment. Again, God's wrath passed over them if the blood was present, if they were obedient in providing this sacrificial lamb and and following God's instructions. And by providing this Passover sacrifice, God graciously spares the Israelites by means of the blood of that lamb. Now, the the symbolism is, is obvious here. A death has taken place, and that death substitutes for the death of the firstborn. I mean, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 draws an analogy between the Passover lamb and Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. It's no wonder in Scripture that we see Jesus being crucified during what? The Passover. It's very obvious symbolism. This is a foreshadowing of what was to occur in Christ. Next is the day of atonement. This is primarily seen in Leviticus 17 and 23. And I've heard some say that Leviticus is the book of atonement in the Old Testament. Leviticus deals with mankind's spiritual relationship to God by means of sacrificial rituals and ceremonialism that prefigure the atoning death of Christ. And Leviticus is a book that we're probably afraid of reading, right? Because we just don't understand everything that's in there. A major theme in Leviticus is God's holiness. And this is bad news for sinners, because we see there we're barred from God's presence. The people can't go into God's presence because of their sin. Sinners cannot approach God. The sacrificial system instituted by God, as revealed in the book of Leviticus provided a means for sinners to be, in a way, acceptable to God, and His wrath against sin would be delayed. It would be put off temporarily. Now we're going to do a brief examination of the Levitical offerings in a moment. But I want us to highlight the Day of Atonement first. Because of all the sacrifices... Of all the offerings, of all the rituals, of all the ceremonialism, of all the festivals, the Day of Atonement exceeds all of them in its significance to Israel's relationship with God. God's holiness is incompatible with man's sinfulness. And, and the Day of Atonement highlights this and prefigured what would be provided in the Messiah. You see, the people required undefiled mediators between them and God. And without these mediators, the sinful Israelites could not approach God's presence, and God's presence could not reside in their midst. The Day of Atonement was one of God's solutions for this problem. We see the Day of Atonement again in Leviticus 17 and 23, For the sake of time, uh, we'll only examine Leviticus 23. You can look at Leviticus 17 um, on your own time later. Leviticus 23, verse 26, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On exactly the tenth day of this seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble yourselves and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this day. For it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. If there is any person who does not humble himself on this very day, he shall be cut off from his people. So God takes this very seriously. The day of atonement was a once a year occurrence, and it was indeed very serious. It was when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and provide a blood sacrifice on behalf of the people for sins that had been committed unknowingly or unintentionally. And this was a corporate observance that happened with repetition each, each year. The Day of Atonement was not just for individuals. It was a corporate thing. They all participated in this. And this day stood as the central observance of the Jewish sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus. And the Day of Atonement temporarily satisfied God's wrath. It cleansed the sanctuary from the pollution of sin, it, and, it, and it removed those sins from the community. In fact, if someone, the text says, did not humble himself on this day, he was to be cut off from the people. This was so God would accept their, their worship, and so He could dwell with them. It, it, it was not personal salvation. It was a type of corporate cleansing, again, that had to be repeated every year. Faithful observance of this day put off God's wrath for a temporary time. And the day provided a a symbol of the real and true atonement provided by Christ, his once-for-all atonement. It prefigured that. Now, sacrifices happened all throughout the year. The Day of Atonement was just... The big one, the main one, the, the corporate one. So I'd like for us to do just a, a, a real brief survey of, of some of those other sacrifices and what they entailed. And there is a very clear theme of these offerings that, that you'll notice. Um, you'll, you see it up on the screen and in your notes as well. But I'd like for us to turn to Leviticus chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there, Leviticus chapter 1. And we're going to read some selections out of a few of these early chapters. And I'm just going to let the text mainly speak for itself. It's going to be pretty obvious what what the theme of atonement is from from these selections that we read. And again, the purpose of reading these isn't to explain every single little detail that's going on. I want us to hover and see the big theme, the big picture here. Leviticus 1, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, so that he may be accepted before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, so that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. Then he shall slaughter the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priests shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around the altar that is the doorway of the tent of meeting. Look at verse 10. If his offering is from the flock, either from the sheep or from the goats, as a burnt offering, he shall offer a male without defect. He shall, he shall slaughter it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. And Aaron's sons the, priest, the priests shall sprinkle its blood Around on the altar. Verse 14 If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from the young doves. The priest shall bring it to the altar and pinch off its head and offer it up in smoke on the altar, and its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. Flip a couple pages over to chapter 3. Verse 1, now if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings, he is going to offer from the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without defect before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the offering and slaughter it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and Aaron's sons the priests shall sprinkle the blood around on the altar. Verse 6, but if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offerings is from the flock, he shall offer it male or female without defect. If he's going to offer a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and slaughter it in front of the tent of meeting. And again, Aaron's sons shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. Verse 12, now if his offering is a goat, he shall offer it before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on its head and slaughter it in front of the tent of meeting, and the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. You catching the theme yet? Turn over to, verse, or to chapter 4, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and commits any of them, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then he is to offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for his sin which he's committed. He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slaughter the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest shall also put some of the blood of the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting, and all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering. Look at verse 13. Now, if the entire congregation of Israel does wrong unintentionally, and, and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly, and they commit any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and they become guilty, when the, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd as a sin offering, and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. Then the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to bring some of the blood of the bull to the tent of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. He shall then put some of the blood of the horns on the altar, which is before the Lord of the tent of meeting, and all the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering. Verse 22, When a leader sins and unintentionally does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, he becomes guilty. If his sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat. A male without defect, he shall lay his hand on the head of the male goat and slaughter it in in front of the Lord as a burnt offering. It is a sin offering. Then the priest is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar and the rest of its blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offerings. Verse 27 talks about the common people sinning unintentionally in the same vein. Turn over to chapter 5. We're almost done with this. Chapter 5, verse 8. Excuse me, let's go to verse 17. Now, if any person sins, any person sins, and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, Even though he was unaware, he is still guilty and shall bear its punishment. He is then to bring the priest a ram without defect from the flock, according to your assessment as a guilt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin, which he committed unintentionally and did not know it, and it will be forgiven him. It is a guilt offering, for he was certainly guilty before the Lord. We're going to stop there. We could keep going, but we're going to stop there. That's pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? Not, not anybody was left out. No type of sin was left out. And some of you, I realize, may be grimacing as we read through these accounts. And I understand why. And you probably should grimace at this. Because it highlights the seriousness of sin. And we didn't even read a lot of the real gory stuff in there. You know, you've got to feel for these Levitical priests. I mean, the priests... As we say in the South, bless their hearts. I mean, this was their job. They were butchers. They were butchers. They had to do this over and over and over and over again, regularly, without fail. The people had to raise or buy these animals over and over and over and over again, without fail, for all of their sins committed, intentionally or not whether they were aware of them or not, whenever the sins were made aware to them. I mean, I can't imagine that. Can you? Can you imagine being under this? Now, don't get me wrong. This was a grace from God given to his people to temporarily put his wrath off. It was a grace, but thank the Lord Jesus Christ that he has come and freed us from this. We are under the new covenant Inaugurated by His blood. He has has set us free from this system. And in case you didn't notice, there was a requirement of a blood sacrifice. We read about peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. No matter what type of offering it was to be, no matter what animal was required for it, no matter what the procedures were, About the altar itself, or the priests, blood was required. A death of something. The word blood in the Old Testament often is a placeholder for the concept of death. A death of something was required. And we could have kept going in in Leviticus. The word blood is mentioned 87 times in that book. And I know we read quite a bit, but I wanted you to see how abundantly clear it was that blood is required for sin. A death of something was required for sin. You know, when we read books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, even chunks of Exodus, I think we tend to get hung up on some of the details, you know, that we don't fully understand or we just avoid the books altogether. And we just miss the whole point. Of what's being said. We get hung up on why did the priest dip his, you know, dip his finger in and smear it on the horn? Why would they have to face northward for that, that sacrifice? Why the ram for this particular sacrifice? Why do the priests wear what they wear? Why is the tabernacle set up the way it is? All those are good questions, but we can get hung up on those things and completely miss the point. All of this was required for sin. All of it. Sin is that serious. A death of something was required, and a lot of death. We often focus on, you know, how bad the Israelites were and how many times they they turned from the Lord their God, how many times they did what was right in their own eyes, but, I mean, how much faith a lot of these folks had to do this, to believe the words of the Lord their God and participate in this, trusting that his wrath would be put off and looking forward to a time where they didn't have to do this again. What faith that some of them must have had. The point, though, is that something had to die for their sin. Blood is required. Sin is that serious. A few more scriptures just outside of Leviticus just to show that this theme wasn't localized there. Genesis 3 The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So the first physical deaths after the fall really should have been that of the man and the woman. They were the sinners immediately deserving of judgment. But the first physical death was not that of the man or the woman, was it? It was an animal. There are many faithful theologians that that say this text in Genesis 3 is a shadow of the reality that God would one day substitute out sinners for another sacrifice. Exodus 24, verse 8, So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So we've already looked at the Passover in Exodus 12, and we've seen the theme of of blood throughout that account. Blood was also used to seal a covenant. In this act, Moses responds to the obedience of the people and their acceptance of the book of the covenant. The treaty of Yahweh's covenant with his people was now in effect in in this text in Exodus 24. Blood was necessary to inaugurate the Mosaic covenant, also foreshadowing the new covenant being inaugurated through the blood of Christ. He is the mediator of that covenant. Also, Deuteronomy 12, and you shall offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God, and the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God. Blood sacrifice is reiterated in this second giving of the law here in Deuteronomy 12. The theme of atonement in the Old Testament is blood sacrifice. You don't have atonement without the shedding of blood. God takes sin that seriously. Even after we're converted to Christ, we don't mess around with sin in part because we know shed blood was the cost of it. So why, med- so why meddle in it anymore? Christ gave his life for it. Now, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament had some limitations to it. What were those limitations? First, their, ability, their inability to fully atone for sin. The animal sacrifices and the other offerings were unable to fully atone for sin. They could not do fully what needed to be done. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were types pointing to something else. They did not atone in the sense that they took away sin permanently or fully, hence having to be done over and over again. They pointed to the perfect sacrifice of Christ, which would effect true and perfect atonement. The prophets tell us that the sacrifices didn't cut it. Micah tells us this in Micah 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take pleasure in thousands of rams, and ten thousand rivers of oil. Shall I give him my own firstborn for my wrongdoings, the fruit of my very body for the sin of my soul? He's told you, mortal one, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? So often we hone in on that last part. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God, but You see the context of that statement now. God didn't care about the sacrifices if their hearts were far from him. If they had no faith, then those works were dead. God wanted from his people a heart from which right behavior would then flow. It was never about the sacrifices in of themselves. Religiosity disconnected from true faith is is meaningless to God. The sacrifices were insufficient and of themselves. The Lord declares in Hosea 6, For I desire loyalty rather than sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, the sacrificial system alone found in the Levitical law just doesn't fully cut it. God required more for permanent atonement. So they couldn't fully atone for sin, And they had an inability to remove the stain of sin. The sacrifices did not and could not cleanse anybody's conscience. They couldn't couldn't make a person's heart alive. Hebrews 9 shows us this. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food, drink, and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Essentially, the writer of Hebrews is saying that the sacrificial system addressed merely the external. Food, drink, washings, regulations of the body. They cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. There was a problem in the heart that cannot be fixed by animal sacrifice or other offerings. And the Levitical sacrifices themselves included no provision for this. They included no provision for removing or doing away with anybody's sinful nature. They were not able to remove the stain caused by sin. Hebrews 10.11, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Hebrews 10.4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Levitical system was not designed by God to remove sins. It revealed the seriousness of their sinful condition. Temporary covering required the death of an animal. It revealed the reality of God's holiness and righteousness and that sin must be covered with a blood sacrifice. But they did not remove the stain of sin. They had to continually offer the same sacrifices over and over again. It was not permanent. And they only dealt with the external They did not wash you. They did not purify you. They did not sanctify you at the heart level. And these sacrifices were preparatory. They pointed to to the coming sacrifice that would be provided in the Messiah. It made the people expectant for a permanent, once-for-all sacrifice that would be provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we look to Christ, not our own works. If bloody sacrifice couldn't do it, then no good work you do can do it. No sacrament, no zealous emotions, no amount of community service that makes the material lives of others better. There is only one work that atones for your sin, and it is not a work that you do or will do. So we look to Christ. Limits of the Old Testament sacrificial system, also their inability to bring about Eternal life. They were not able to provide eternal life and of themselves because they didn't provide permanent atonement, which we've already seen. Hebrews nine. For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the violations that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. The writer of Hebrews here clearly reflects that the the sins committed during the time of the first covenant weren't permanently covered by the Levitical sacrificial system. And thus, eternal life was not gained from them. And one question that that often comes up right about now when when discussing limitations of Old Testament sacrifices is, well, what about the Old Testament saints? If, If the sacrificial system clearly didn't cut it, How were they justified? How were they redeemed? Were they? They lived before before Christ, so what about them? Well, we know from Hebrews 11, the gallery of faith passage, very clearly the Old Testament saints were, were justified by their faith. They believed God and it was counted to them as righteousness, as was the case with Abraham in Genesis 15. This text in Hebrews 9 answers that question very explicitly. The sacrifice of Christ provides redemption for those sins committed under the first covenant. See, the Old Testament sacrifices were confessional. They demonstrated repentant faith in Yahweh and obedience to his statutes. By offering the sacrifices, a believer identified himself outwardly with the covenant God and his covenant people, And this outward demonstration ought to have been the result of true faith. When faith was absent, we've seen, the sacrifice was an empty gesture. In a way, we should understand the sacrifice of Christ as, in a way, retroactively redeeming the Old Testament saints who exercised faith in a similar way that the Day of Atonement functioned retroactively to unintentional sins committed. And as we'll see next time, Christ's work is infinite in its merit. It is limitless in its merit. It is 100% sufficient to bring about the salvation of as many people as God wills, including those who live before Christ. A quote there from Bruce, Bruce Damaris, the Old Testament sacrifices clearly were preparatory. They pointed beyond themselves to the once for all, and perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And we will examine this this once-for-all sacrifice in Hebrews 10 next time, but I'd like for us to turn our attention with the time we have remaining to the New Testament to examine the theme of atonement in a more broad, thematic way similar to how we examine the Old Testament. So we've seen the theme of atonement is blood sacrifice in the Old Testament, and that theme carries over into the New Testament. A blood sacrifice is required. Hebrews 9, verse 22, And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Again, the writer of Hebrews affirms the necessity of blood. But the shedding of animal blood doesn't cut it. We've we've seen that. The sacrifice that was required for all humanity was a perfect sacrifice, one that was without blemish, one that could provide atonement for all humanity. And only the infinite, pre existent Son of God was able to bear that. He was the only one that could bear the concentrated, infinite wrath of God for all humanity to satisfy God's requirements. 1 Peter 1 knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So the focus of the New Testament isn't on animal sacrifice, animal blood, or ceremonialism of the Levitical priesthood. Its focus is on the blood of Christ, that which is imperishable, And precious to redeem sinners. The new covenant, inaugurated by the blood of Christ, frees God's people from the sacrificial system. There was a sufficient sacrifice provided on the cross and affirmed by God in the resurrection. Christ provides the atonement we so desperately need. So, what exactly does Christ's atonement provide? What does His atonement accomplish? We've examined a bit how it cleanses the conscience and provides eternal life in contrast to animal sacrifice and offerings, which couldn't provide those things. In the New Testament, we learn a lot uh, by the terms utilized by the New Testament authors. I've I've given you a list of of applicable terms that, that help broaden out our understanding of what Christ has accomplished And as with most lists, this is not necessarily comprehensive. These are just kind of the main terms that that you see most often in Scripture that that are related to the atonement. And these are word groups, not just one one term. First is redemption. And you'll notice in your handouts, I list a few Greek terms under these word groups. Something that was told to me, that was helpful. Something I, I, I tell the teens in, in the youth group whenever I kind of go Greek on them is you don't have to remember the Greek words, but you do need to know what they mean. God has selected these words in His inherent scripture and all the meaning they carry. So, what are some of the words the New Testament authors utilize to indicate redemption? First is lutron this is the price of release. A ransom, Mark 10.45 is where we see this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man, remember that messianic title of Christ? The Son of Man has given his life as a ransom. So a price has been paid to to guarantee a release. This term is also seen in the verb and participial forms, which is where we get the English verb Redeem. Here are a couple of examples Titus Titus 2:14 who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. Christ has released us from the captivity of lawlessness, he also purifies us in this redemption. So you see regeneration and sanctification here. God's justice has been satisfied by this price paid. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Ransomed, same word. Next is lutrosis. This is the experience of being liberated from an oppressive situation. It's a ransoming or a releasing, a, a redemption. This word describes our experience of redemption. Lutron describes the reality of what Christ does, this word is our experience of it. Luke 1:68 Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Hebrews 9:12 He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is personal. He has visited His people, redeemed His people. We experience eternal redemption. It is secured for us. Redemption is what we gain in Christ. Apolatrosis is next. means deliverance. You are delivered from something. I think the clearest example of this is in Ephesians 1. Here it is. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Our English translations often use the word redemption here. And and that's fine. It's it's, it's in the the word group of redemption. But the concept is deliverance. You are redeemed from something. You are delivered from something. You are delivered from a type of, of bondage. A price was paid for your deliverance from bondage. You were bought out of the slave market of iniquity, MacArthur says of, of this text. Next is agorzadzo, to buy or to purchase. This word reflects that your redemption required a payment. That's the focus of this word. The, the deliverance you have was not a free transaction. There was a price paid. First Corinthians 6 Verse 20, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You were bought, you were purchased with a price. This implies you don't belong to you, you belong to another. You belonged to a master, your sin, the devil, the world, and Christ purchased you for himself, and so now he is your master. And of course, the price was his his blood. The blood of the Son was required for your ransom. One more term in this word group for redemption. exagorzazo. This is to secure liberation. Again, you've been freed from something, but this kind of takes it a step further. You were not only delivered, but you were set free from oppression. You have been liberated from something oppressive. Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You were set free from the curse of the law. You are not, no longer under its oppression. Christ became a curse for us. This redemption was accomplished by Christ stepping into our place, you might say, as a substitute. A substitutionary sacrifice was given <clears throat> to ransom us. So we gather from all these passages this theme of redemption. You were bought. There was a price paid for you. You were delivered. You were liberated from, from the oppression of sin. You're not under the curse of the law. Sin does not rule over you. It's not your master anymore. Those chains are broken. Christ is your master now. And the price paid was the blood of your master, Jesus Christ. This is what Christ's atonement accomplishes for you. And you may have noticed from these passages that we we briefly examined that the focus is not on to whom the price is paid, but rather that there was a payment, a very expensive payment, a payment we couldn't possibly provide ourselves. There is no way for us to provide it. Only the incarnate Son of God who took on human nature, who is our perfect representative, could provide this payment for all humanity. The next word group applicable to understanding the atonement of Christ is propitiation. This word propitiation derives from actually a Latin term that means to render favorable. This word group has to do with appeasing wrath and winning favor. We know from scripture that God hates sin. He's holy. He cannot tolerate it. God's wrath must be poured out upon sin. This word, uh, propitiation, connotes the idea of God's wrath being turned aside from you by the appropriate sacrifice, thus rendering you in a favorable state. Hilaskamai and Hilasmos are the two main words for, for, uh, for propitiation. Luke eighteen thirteen, we see it there. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So in this parable, the tax collector, recognizing the severity of his sin, cries out to God for what most of our Bibles render as mercy. But he is crying out to God to propitiate his wrath. It's, it's that word. He's pleading that God would turn aside his righteous wrath away from him via another means. Don't pour out your wrath upon me. Be merciful to me. Don't deliver unto me what I duly deserve. He's appealing to God's mercy, and so our Bibles, I think, correctly render this, be merciful. But he is referring to propitiation. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. English translators chose the word propitiation here because there's really no other word for it in in this particular context. Christ made a sacrifice that turned aside God's wrath from you. And this was done within his high priestly service. But he didn't just make the sacrifice. He wasn't just the priest that went in and provided it. Christ himself was the sacrifice. As John expands in 1 John 2, plainly, he is the propitiation for our sins. Again, Christ didn't just make the sacrifice, he himself was the sacrifice. He didn't just Turn away God's wrath. He received God's wrath on your behalf. There are a number of uh, other texts we could look at. 1 John 4, Romans 3, more of Hebrews 9. We've been in Hebrews 9 a lot. The wrath of God must be satisfied. God cannot overlook sin due to his holiness. God's wrath must be poured out upon sin. And the word group for propitiation is not meant to imply a mere covering for sin, or an overlooking of sin, or even a removing of God's wrath. When Christ propitiated God's wrath on the cross, his wrath didn't just go away. It just wasn't poured out upon you. It was poured out on Christ. This is a much more severe theme of the atonement. Great news for us, though. This is the reality of, of God's, God's reaction to sin. It, it implies that God's wrath has been poured out upon another. His wrath has been turned aside from being targeted at you on the basis of your sin, and that wrath was directed at another sufficient sacrifice. You have been substituted out. Christ has stepped in. You and God's wrath were on a collision course, and you were removed out of the way, and that wrath collided with another, with Christ. Propitiation. This is what Christ's atonement accomplishes. One final word group that's applicable for us to understand is reconciliation. This describes a changing of relationship from enemy to friend. Reconciliation is a standing of positional peace. Through the atonement of Christ, you were at enmity with God. Now you are at peace with God. Bruce Damaris says theologically... Reconciliation connotes that alienation and enmity between God and sinners is changed to a relation of friendship and communion. The first word in this uh, in this word group is "catalasso," means the exchange of hostility for a friendly relationship. Again, this is the essence of reconciliation. Relational hostility is exchanged for relational friendliness, a relational peace. No more hostile conflict between the two parties. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we live by his life. When we were God's enemies, Christ was able by his death, by his atoning sacrifice, to reconcile us to God so that we're we're no longer his enemies. But we sit at his very table as adopted sons and daughters. Reconciled. 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Reconciliation is initiated by God through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God calls believers to proclaim the gospel of reconciliation so that unbelievers may go from a position of alienation to a state of forgiveness and right relationship with God. Catalange is the next word in your notes. This is the reestablishment of an interrupted or broken relationship. So this final term implies that at one time, God and humanity were not at enmity with one another. Christ restores that which was broken at the fall. He reconciles us to God and restores that which was lost. Romans 5, 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Colossians 1, Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So There is a change in the repentant sinner's relationship to God. Man is reconciled to God when Christ restores man to a rightful relationship with him. Peace was made. Peace was restored. Peace with God is a theological implication of reconciliation. This is a positional peace, not merely a feeling of peace. Peace with God is part of your standing if you're a believer. You were once an enemy of God and now you are brought into his family as a full member. There's a standing of peace and friendship and communion between you and God. And those who are unbelievers, those, those who are not built into the household of faith, according to Christ, who's the cornerstone, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, rejectors of the gospel, Scripture would reflect, are an enemy of God. You were once an enemy of God. Colossians 1.20 that, that we see here is, 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 is not teaching universalism. God's face is, is turned against them, Psalm 34 says. That's, that's an anthrop- anthropomorphic way of saying God's displeasure is on them. They're on a collision course with God's wrath. There is hostility between sinful man and holy God, and there must be reconciliation. And that reconciliation comes only through the blood of Christ. Only his atoning work satisfies God's righteous wrath for sin and restores the relationship that was lost at the fall. Romans 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is only in and through his work that this is accomplished. He is our perfect representative and has provided the perfect sacrifice that is sufficient for this. And so we look to Christ. Reconciliation, this is what the atonement is. Of Christ accomplishes. Now, there is a conclusion that, that we draw from all of this. When we put all of this together, all of the scriptures pertaining to Christ's atonement, all of the themes of his work, we arrive at the theological conclusion that we call penal substitution. The necessary theological conclusion based on the language and themes of Christ's atonement in scripture is penal substitution. Penal substitutionary atonement. Some call it the substitutionary theory. Some call it the vicarious atonement. Whatever. Whatever terminology you want to use. This is the bread and butter of the atonement. It's not the only thing to be said about the atonement of Christ, but it certainly is the primary anchor of our theology on this matter, a big part of our Christology. So what do we mean by penal substitution? We pretty much defined it already uh, through all these texts we've looked at. I've given you a few definitions of this in your handout by men far more theologically astute than I am, so we'll let them define it. Bruce Damaris defines it as indicating that the Messiah died in the sinner's place and took upon himself the sinner's just punishment. Tom Schreiner The Father, because of his love for humans, sent his Son, who offered himself willingly and gladly, to satisfy God's justice, so that Christ took the place of sinners. The punishment and penalty we deserved was laid on Jesus Christ instead of us. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, refers to this as the vicarious atonement. He says, a vicar is someone who stands in the place of another or who represents another. Christ's death was therefore vicarious because he stood in our place and represented us. As our representative, he took the penalty we deserved. This is penal substitution. Christ took your place and bore the penalty you rightly deserved. He died in your place, and this satisfies God's justice. This propitiated his wrath. Christ is our substitute because He was our perfect representative. He became like us in all things so that He could do that for us. Penal substitution. The Son of God takes the penalty for you. This is what the atonement of Christ has accomplished. Well, we are about out of time. Next time, we'll examine a few more things uh, about the atonement. We'll really look at Christ's life and death, his obedience, his sufferings, things of that nature. We'll also study the nature of Christ's atonement. It's sufficient. It's once for all. It's for all of God's people. It's sufficient for every single one of God's people, without exception. And then we'll end with with some implications of the atonement so that should be good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the church. Lord, thank you for coming and becoming like us so that you could stand in our place by being our perfect representative and perfect sacrifice. Lord, you have propitiated God's holy wrath, so we do not have to collide with it. Thank you for that, Lord. We praise your name.